And so I think any hard goal, if you want to be an entrepreneur, maybe the answer isn't to be an entrepreneur tomorrow. It might be a five-year plan, learning code, making relationships, gaining a set of experiences in a specific industry, or it could be doing it tomorrow. And then failing a few times and trying to, and then building a set of skills that way. But I think the worst thing to do is to have a one-year plan. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, any, the, my recommendation would be be very thoughtful, come up with a long-term plan that, um, that you are willing to stick to and that you care a lot about, and then try to execute on that plan in a systematic way over many, many years, and you will be, in the end, unstoppable. of your audience. Uh, my name is Finn Uppum. Pleasure to be here and thank you so much for having uh, me today. Um, I, I'm the managing partner, founding partner of Haymaker Ventures, which is an early stage fintech fund that spun out of Teal Capital, uh, which is Peter Teal's family office. And um, we focus on investing in series seed and series A fintech companies, which is a sector within venture capital. Mm -hmm. Um, and we um, we typically um, back teams that are maybe um, I don't know something between two and twenty people, uh -huh. um, and sort of when they're just starting to figure out their business model, their growth, and what they're doing, we sort of work with them, support them in helping figure out where they're going, what they're doing, and growing. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is our first fund. Before I worked for Haymaker, um, I worked for Peter Thiel. Mm -hmm. So we're we're college students. We're we're really young people. Have you funded young people in the past? And what's that been like compared to funding older founders? Uh, um, we uh, we have funded wide ranges. Uh, ben, uh, fintech specifically probably has on average skews to older founders. Um, I think the reason for that is it unlike pure sort of tech bets, fintech often involves companies with a lot of regulation, mm -hmm. a lot of legacy technology. Um, part of that is just that it's a highly regulated field. Part of that is that um, is that like a lot of people worked in finance and technology then moved into fintech. Um, but that said, there are certainly large swaths of it that are pure tech, like say payments companies uh -huh. can be pretty pure tech, or a lot of the crypto companies were pretty pure tech, and you had younger founders in those areas. We've probably backed founders anywhere from early 20s to their 50s. Um, it's 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 funny. There's a, there's a pros and cons to being older and younger as a founder. What what are some of those pros and cons? If you don't mind me asking, I mean, have you ever had you know a really young ambitious guy come in and just be like, "Screw you, I'll do what I want," or you know, as if in that way? Like, I don't know. That would be great. Um, no, uh, I guess the pros of being younger and sort of to put it in a tongue in cheek way is. You don't know what mistakes you're not supposed to make yet, and so you make them. And sometimes they're not mistakes; they turn out really, really good. So some of the most innovative and disruptive companies, um, the Carlton Brothers at Stripe, which unfortunately we did not invest in, is a good example. I believe they started Stripe when they were in college or right out of college, and obviously spent a decade building it into one of the sort of probably the most valuable private company on the planet. Um, they made mistakes that. People with seasoned in the industry wouldn't have done the stuff they did, and so they would have thought it was a mistake, but actually it turned out to be correct. And they made a bet that turned out correct. So I think there's more audaciousness and sort of, uh, you know, uh, willingness to risk things and try new things when there are when you have younger founders. Probably also better or slightly better technology chops because their technology is probably more up to date, more just out of school. You probably learn newer and fresher things. 
the obviously the advantage of being older is um, is also valuable in fintech. You have much more experience in the industry, more relationships in the industry, a better sense of like where the opportunities are. Um, I would say that um, we mostly do invest in founders that are probably in their 30s or 40s um, on on average, but some of the best founders we see are also much much younger. Uh, it's always it's always hard to give advice about this stuff because you know you should you should try to solve a really big problem when you're a founder and so like and you should do so in a way that like is really um is is and you can take more risk when you're young um but like you might not know what problems there are to solve would you say then that maybe the optimal founder would be someone who's like younger more towards college but with those older more seasoned advisors to help them get through those more like difficult areas I think the optimal founder is somebody with a, you know, I'm not sure there's an age. I put an age on it. I'd say when you find that really hard problem that you really want to solve, that's the optimal time to be a founder. I think the biggest mistake people make in terms of being a founder is to think that they're going to get to a place where it's not going to be risky or hard to be a founder. It is the hardest thing in the world to found a company. There is no easy way. There's no roadmap. There's no way to de-risk it. Whether you have money or you have a career or you have a bad degree or anything else, it's going to be, it is incredibly hard and kind of mad to start a truly disruptive company. And so I think that comes with, uh, I think you should do it when you find a problem, not when you think it's like safe or when you think that there's no consequences to risk. Because if you're going to spend five or 10 years of your life doing something, there's always going to be consequences. It's psychologically, financially, and personally always difficult. I think you embody that in, in your life story because- you didn't take the safe route out of investment banking, which is jumping to private equity. You went straight into venture capital, which in, in a lot of terms can be deemed riskier. So what was, how did that happen? And what was the decision behind that? Um, I, I think I made a series of career choices that were probably not advisable to the, uh, to most people. And I'm not sure I would give my young self the advice to do exactly what I did, but I think that's probably pretty normal for venture capital and, and technology and entrepreneurship in general. Um, I think the weirdest choice I made was probably to get a PhD after after I went to, after I did my undergrad. I got a PhD in uh, in, in applied economics and management science, and um, uh, did spend four years getting a PhD MBA at the University of Pennsylvania, at Wharton School, um, and uh, I did my dissertation on the uh, in, on, on sort of innovation and social networks and how they combine. It was incredibly fascinating, but probably not a wise career move if you're not going to become an academic. After that, I did decide not to become an academic. I decided to go into um, finance, and I worked in investment banking at a few firms, um, uh, mostly at Morgan Stanley. And then one day um, when I was at you know one of my finance jobs in, in banking, I got an intro to a guy called Peter Thiel, who was I, was, who was, who was, I knew who he was, but I didn't know a ton about him. And a friend of mine knew him and said, please, you know, this guy, I think you guys would really enjoy talking. And I had breakfast with him. He was kind enough to have breakfast with me. And we had what was supposed to be a sort of 45, half an hour minute conversation, ended up being a much longer conversation and a really incredibly interesting conversation. And at the end of the conversation, he suggested that I work, work, well, he said with him, but I think he definitely meant for him. Um, and, uh, you know, with a few more interviews and a few more conversations, I ended up going to work for him a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe a month later, wow. um, or maybe even sooner. And, uh, just left my job, told him I was leaving, um, had no regrets on it. There's only a few times in your life you meet, you have opportunities to truly work with exceptional people. Yeah. And I thought Peter was just one of those incredibly ambitious, smart, mm-hmm. aggressive, 
thoughtful um, people that I, I really sort of vibed with and I ended up spending 10 years working for him, which was amazing. Long duration assets are more valuable in low interest rate environments because the value of a distant future dollar is greater when your discount rate is lower. So obviously rates going up um, uh, has affected the perceived value of venture capital or, mm -hmm. and, and technology companies in general. You see that in the public markets, um, excluding the biggest monopoly tech companies um, have, you know, a lot of them have gone down a lot, um, especially a lot of the SPACs, which you could argue some, many of which were not good companies anyway. Um, so this has definitely been a, a negative for startup valuations, and it's also been a negative for the amount of money invested into new funds or existing funds. Um, in the end, I think technology is incredibly valuable in any environment, and so I'm not, I think long-term, I remain relatively uh, bullish, good investors, but I think that, I think the big difference here is that there's a mistake that was made, which is the idea that like technology is good, so more money invested in technology was good too. Mm -hmm. And I don't think what you want is more tech companies. I think what you want is more good tech companies. Yeah. I don't think what you want is more venture capitalists. I think you want more venture capitalists brave enough and skilled enough to invest in truly important companies that are both contrarian and fundamental, both contrarian and also fundamental. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think a lot of the stuff that went away, a lot of the money that went away was the money that shouldn't probably shouldn't have been in the industry at all. A lot of the people yeah. that are leaving in many cases are people that probably didn't have the passion and the commitment to venture capital or entrepreneurship in general. On the, on the LP side, I think people who really want to invest should invest in VC because it's an uncorrelated asset class with potentially high returns. Many of those are going to be institutional investors and some of them will be individuals and family offices. That I think hasn't changed so much. It'll go up, it'll go down. On the, v, on the VC side, I think people who have taken investing as a profession or truly love technology will stay and it won't be a problem. Mm -hmm. And on the entrepreneurship side, I think the biggest mistake made was people thought there was a some kind of roadmap to be an entrepreneur, some kind of like way to be an entrepreneur that was systematizable and had a, had a map. And if you did it and you raised an A and you showed some growth and you raised a B and then you IPO'd. And I think the truth is every line to be a good entrepreneur of a great company is its own line and it's going to be hard and unpredictable and it's not formulaic. And I think that's the biggest lesson I've learned uh, from the last yeah. couple of years. It's hard. It requires commitment. It's weird. It's different. And I think those people who believe that will continue. Yeah. Um, I think it's a lot harder to be a good investor than it is to look like a good investor. And I think that the next five years will show who is a good investor and who just looked like a good investor. Similarly, yeah. I think it's a lot harder to be a good entrepreneur than it is to be than it is to look like an entrepreneur. Yep. I think a lot of people who tweet about and write about and talk about being entrepreneurs haven't realized how hard it really is. It's an incredibly hard thing. I, I think that kind of harkens back to the to the comments we've heard from from Elon recently about people who are trying to look good so hard right yep. now versus versus actually going out and doing good things. And, and Elon got a lot of flack for the things he said recently. But I think that he has a very valid point, just like you said. Um, I almost wonder, though, um, the whole SPAC bubble. I mean, there was this time a few years ago now um, where, you know, you had the DWAC, IPOA, BCDEF or whatever it was. Right. And, and now a lot of those have gone bust. Were were those fraudulent in a way, or would you would you classify them as fraudulent? Because a lot of people lost tons of money on those SPACs when when they were very promising at some level. 
Um, I, have, I have no opinion on whether they're fraudulent or not. I'm, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, and I haven't looked closely at their accounting from the inside. Um, but what I would say is, I think it's really hard. So if you look at the history of IPOs in technology, you see that like if you look at where Microsoft IPO'd or Google IPO'd uh, versus where like say Facebook IPO'd or a more recent IPO, companies have been IPOing later and later and later and later. And public market and the number of public stocks and say the U.S. stock market has I think halved over the last 20 years. So it's gotten right from a regulatory perspective, it's gotten harder and harder to IPO. Companies have waited longer and longer to IPO. Mm -hmm. So more and more of the value has been gained by private markets instead of public markets. And I think this encouraged a lot of people to go into technology. SPACs were kind of like the reflex against that. No, I can still IPO earlier. I can still IPO. I, I can give public market investors, for lack of a better word, non-qualified investors, like you know, more retail investors, access to these early stage technology opportunities. And I think that's all well and good, and I think that's probably a good trend. The problem is that uh, by getting around the regulation uh, of, of IPOing through, of IPOing, instead they did this reverse IPO that's a spec, they, um, in some cases, those companies weren't great companies. They were too small, too early, not fully baked business models in a time of hype. Um, I think many of them are great companies that will end up being great companies. They just need a few more years to mature. Mm -hmm. A firm's a good example. I think a firm run by Max Levchin, part of the PayPal mafia, someone who I respect tremendously, will be a great company eventually. I just think it had some more maturing to do in the public markets. And it's just more painful when you mature in the public markets than when you mature in the yeah. private markets. There's more volatility. There's more news cycles. That said, news cycles aren't the be-all, end-all of the world. Getting negative press and having volatility in your stock price that's part of being an entrepreneur. If you do it in the public markets, it looks really bad. When you do it in the private markets, no one notices. Yeah. Um, and um, the mark to market is part of the problem. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe this tells some companies that without a fully baked business model, they should stay private longer. Yeah. I know you just mentioned a firm, but there's a lot of players in the BNPL space now, uh, even Apple um, trying to enter that space as well. What are your thoughts on that industry? And do you fundamentally think it's a better product than a credit card? Um, so a lot of millennials don't like having credit cards, um, and they want to have debit cards. But when you have a debit card, the problem is your cash balance is, you, you know, your purchasing power is restricted to your cash balance, right? And so BNPL is kind of a product of that need for people without credit cards to get loans. And then as far as you're going to buy a big ticket item um, and you're going to finance it over a few months, that's fine. I think that's an okay use case. I'm not as optimistic about BNPL for like, groceries you've seen that are gas payments or small payments where you know it doesn't make sense to to pay those over time it makes more sense just to buy or not buy those items and as far as these buy not pay later products encourage you to buy things you can or shouldn't afford i think that's like probably on the margin bad and these sort of products excite people who could not get access to credit before to spend mm -hmm. more than they should that said, I think a responsible BNPL company should not be lending money to those people anyway. Yeah. So I think it'll just take time to mature the product and figure out who should and shouldn't be extended credit in this way. I don't think there's any incentive for a firm or Walmart or whoever's doing it to accept credit to people who can't pay. So I think it just, it takes many years for any financial product to mature people to realize the appropriate uses of it. And I think that some companies in BNPL extended credit more wildly than they should have. Some people took credit when they shouldn't have and I think it takes a decade or two for people to figure out how to use products. By the way, the same was true of many other use cases, right? Like when different kinds of alcohol were invented in previous decades, people 
overuse that when you know beer got stronger people got drunk too much when gin got invented people it was uh, there you know that's the beginning of prohibition uh-huh. uh i think drugs in the modern world are a similar thing i think these things get and get digested by culture and by society and then become get used more responsibly by the vast majority of people yeah i think the same is true for financial products I, I completely agree. I think, I don't know if you noticed, but the Wall Street Journal reported that over Black Friday and like that whole week, the buy now, pay later like system went like crazy. Like everyone was using it or like, like it was like much more used. And it seems like, yeah, like you're saying, like that's the part where everyone gets kind of like, like drunk. Mm-hmm. And then it's like yeah. the like slow winding down to being like more useful with it. But I mean, can you really use that in moderation? Like what is the point of using buy now, pay later? Because anything big, like a car or a house, like you're going to need a loan and maybe you don't have the credit score. But mm-hmm. if you don't have the credit score at this point, like should you be getting that house or like, yeah. you know, the credit score is there for a reason, right? Like, yeah, the scary thing about BNPL, in my view, is is the model that is behind these companies. They don't get any APR. Most of them don't don't charge any percentage rate. You you get the loan, right? And and the the value proposition is well, well to the merchant is we're going to increase the amount of people that buy your product, and for that we're going to take some small fee. Well, what happens in a recessionary time where you have the one two combo of people buying less shit and you also have people defaulting on those those bnpl loans at the same time uh, i think that's a great question i think we'll see yeah. right the bnpl hasn't gone through a major credit cycle yet yeah so i think that the maturity of the product will mm. be will be improved when when it goes to a hard cycle yeah um to answer your question, like I think the BNPL model is really interesting because they take fees in a variety of ways, right? So the major fee paid by BNPL is the merchant. Actually, when you take $100, the merchant pays the BNPL company often a percentage of that to have extended the credit. Secondly, obviously, interchange, the BNPL company often makes a little bit of money on the, taking some piece of the credit, if you're spending money on the amount of money the credit card charges the merchant to do that transaction. And then I guess those are they're, 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 those are sort of the two major ways they make money. So, mm-hmm. and I'd say the merchant believes they're going to sell more items, but also higher ticket items if people can borrow money. Yeah, those are those are dangerous products, right? Yeah, um, you, they should be used responsibly. Do you think that like the quote unquote like prohibition, going back to that analogy, would be forcing BNPL to use like credit scores or like a new credit score and then i know a lot of people are trying to get rid of the credit score and i've always been saying like there's problems with it would that be a cool way to you know a mini credit score for bnpl that then eventually gets integrated and replaces the credit score yeah it's a great question um i've seen companies startups that try to have bnpls aren't included as i as far as i understand bnpls are not currently included in credit scoring so they're excluded I think I've seen companies that have tried to include both previous BNPLs as well as BNPLs more generally in credit scores, which I think would be definitely something that should be and could be done. But look, the CFPB, who regulates a lot of this and does consumer protection, um, they are probably thinking about how to control and regulate some of this. While I'm not generally in favor of regulation, um, I think it's reasonable to ask companies to um, to lend in a way that results in better outcomes, not worse outcomes. I'll give you just another example of another controversial credit product. They probably BNPL is using is being used instead of, which is payday loans, mm. right? Like the CFPB started regulating payday loans. States regulate their own cap interest rates, but the CFPB regulates uh, payday loans more generally. And what they the, the the metrics they tried to use, and I think they started to use was 
do consumers who take payday loans end up better in a one, two, three year time frame yeah. than a random person who was rejected for those same loans? And obviously, just like uh, BNPL, there's good uses and bad uses for high high interest rate loans. The good uses is your car breaks down, you need to fix it. So you need a small loan to fix your car so you can get to work and pick up your kids at school. A bad use for a payday loan is you want to gamble it or drink more, right? Um, but those are extreme yeah. examples, right? There's lots in between. And generally speaking, that's been a controversial product and yeah. for good reason. Yeah. There's many companies that take advantage of people um, at weak times for yeah. that. And I think BNPL will have the same profile. Generally speaking, I'm not for tons of regulation, um, but I think at the very least transparency and some kind of oversight um, is appropriate yeah. for these. Um, look, the NPL is also really interesting because it's done at point of sale, right? Yes. That's what's really unique about it. It's not like others where you have to go get a loan from a bank and then you spend that money somewhere else. When you're getting that TV or that refrigerator, you are basically right then offered the product. Hmm. And so... Yeah. The question is, do people get tempted when they're sort of in the moment of weakness when they want to buy the nicer TV or the nicer car? Do they, in that moment of weakness, want to get you know, a loan they shouldn't get? That's the question, right? So even waiting a day to get the loan or have to apply a day earlier is the kind of thing which probably from a like from a like Sunstein nudge perspective would improve the, it would reduce the number of people taking their responsible loan. Do the economics of BNPL make sense though? I mean, they're even in a, a relatively good credit environment right now they the margins are extremely slim on a company like a firm um so so i guess my question is do the economics even work out in the most optimal of situations to where they can become as profitable as say a credit card product mm. well it's a pretty short duration loan uh it's offered you know it can, doesn't have to be offered to everybody it can be offered only to people buying stuff so you, you kind of get rid of some of the negative uh, sort of the, the, the sort of negative cycle of having people apply for loans who are fraudulent because if you're buying a TV, you're not getting money, you're getting the TV. Mm-hmm. So you're probably not straight up fraudulent. So I think fraud is a much reduced problem in the NPL versus say like payday or general like near prime or prime lending. So that's a piece of the fraud that's taken out. Secondly, with a lot of the open banking frameworks that are being used, say Plaid as an example, but even more extreme open banking where you can actually get into bank accounts and scrape information or you know good credit scores you can underwrite people pretty well in instantly so a firm instantly underwrites people it's a very impressive technology and then lastly you know not everyone should get every loan right so like the a firm if it's not going to make money shouldn't offer that loan and if it does offer the loan and it loses money it should improve its underwriting mechanism so i think give it a few years i think the bet is that these underwritings improve and yeah. people learn not to use products that they should that they that, that they can't pay back how much does ai improve the space and and does ai have the potential to also improve credit scores as well um so it depends on if you mean generative ai or ai sort of the old way we used to use it i i would say <sighs> When I say AI, I'm meaning predictive AI. So I, I get a, a series of inputs. Let's say um, this person wants to take out $10,000. He's not a past customer. You know, his, this is his current FICO score. What is the probability he defaults? And if that's above some th- or below some threshold, approve this person. So can we fit the, the rate of defaults better than a, a typical credit score can right now with machine learning? Uh, machine learning AI. Um, so... I think machine learning for sure, like, right? Like machine learning is a common tool used for like big data. And basically what you're talking about is underwriting, right? Yeah. Um, 
there's different kinds of underwriting. Historically, underwriting is done with regression models. That's been improved. That's been improved with certain kinds of like more random forest models and other kinds of statistical techniques that are maybe a little bit better. Mm -hmm. um, machine learning has for sure improved underwriting. Can be much more specific about who you're underwriting and be much more narrow in that person's specific situation. The more data you have. Um, I don't think generative AI has yet been used well. I think that is more, would be more used in in, in um, helping people who have defaults yeah. or in collections. I think that's where generative AI would be more useful in the lending space or in pre-qualifying people for a loan. If you can have a, a an adaptive conversation with someone who wants a loan online or on their iPhone, for example, asking the right questions at the right time to make sure that they're a good a borrower. I, don't, I haven't seen that being done yet at yeah. point of sale or more generally, but I think it will be done. Because imagine if you can say, hey, you want this loan, pop onto your iPhone, and let's have a quick conversation about whether or not this is an appropriate loan for you. Huh. And they ask four or five questions, which allow you to be much more specific on your life and your situation, yeah. which will allow you to underwrite, be underwritten better. Is that is that um, the main limitation right now? Is is you know uh, th there's this person out there that they say they're going to use this money for something, but in reality, I I don't actually I can't prove if they're actually going to do that with the money. Right. Let's just do a thought experiment for a second as a roundabout way of answering that question, which is, let's just pretend AI existed and was existed in a way that was a really, really, really good, uh -huh. and and it could be done fully to underwrite you, and you could basically outsource to a hypothetical AI yep. the ability to say yes or no of you making taking that loan out, that BNPL loan out, or that loan generally. And the question is, who would you want that AI to be like? Would you want that AI to be like um, your mom, who is like going to try to do what's best for you? Yep. Would you like that AI to be like your best friend, who like knows you pretty well and knows your situation and why you want that new Sega game box? Would you want that AI to be like a professor or like a government regulator who's trying to do what's good for you or whatever? Um, would you want that AI to be like a random stranger on the street who doesn't know you but may have to ask a question to you to get your general situation? And the reason I ask that is because Everyone thinks of AI as some omniscient, or would you want it to be a machine, computer intelligence, yeah. optimizing for payback and profitability of that loan, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like not clear which of those AI versions you want to tell you whether or not you can take out that loan in this hypothetical world. And I, I mean, I'd ask you guys, who, who would you want to stand in and say yes or no to you when you're at the point of sale and you want to take that loan out? So so I have, I have two answers to that. Um, first and foremost, from a from a purely tech standpoint, I wonder if there's something we can do where where we mix all of those results together. So we have AI from the forest biases there, and AI from the forest biases there, and we somehow converge on an answer using all these different models. And if they disagree, then I, I don't know, right? But personally, I would want. Um, so like you're out late at night and you want you wanted to like get another beer and then your mom should be your AI, but you're like in the yeah. morning trying to get your textbook and you should have like the government be your AI because they're more likely to send you the credit. <laughs> I I can see that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I once again, credit is such a nuanced and situational thing, especially when you get into to micro loans like this, where it's not, you know, some some big purchase that can actually be verified. Um, right. I, so so it, it kind of proves your point. Uh, what's your thoughts, Elijah? 
I would want it to be more like a exactly like like the machine because I feel like if it can look at it objectively, then no matter who like if I have my best friend and my mom, they're all gonna want what's best for me. But that sometimes come sometimes comes at the sacrifice of logic, if that makes sense. And I'd yeah. hope that a, a machine could solve that for me and be like, hey, maybe this isn't the right plan. Like everyone makes a wrong decision in their life, and sometimes yeah. it turns out great. But but who? But Elijah, what is the machine optimizing for? Who, right? Who is it optimizing the machine? for the profitability of the company? I mean, like payback alone. Is it optimizing for like the likelihood of default is it optimizing for like um like you know maximizing your financial well-being over a 50-year period like yeah and a machine's can only optimize for a quantitative outcome right but yeah the if you think of a supply and demand curve the the machine will always optimize to make it so there's no consumer surplus and all that just goes right to the producer yeah, sure. of this capital right so so i i don't know you're going to benefit you will benefit only at the level that you're willing to pay for this loan so if you're they're going to scalp you they're going to take 44% APR right well yeah that's I mean, not I, optimal yeah they, they will extend more loans than you want to give because you're paying interest for the rest of your life is yes. good for the machine it's optimizing for that now that's not necessarily a bad thing like you should there are loans you can take where you want to pay interest for the next like you know a mortgage a car loan like it's fine but like if it if the machine thinks you can like pay back more than you spend more than the, your default on average it doesn't care if 30 yep. percent of those people go bankrupt in service of of that loan and that might not be what you want to optimize for it's certainly not what like the cfpb wants to optimize for mm -hmm. i would i think i would more want to be like whatever would make me the most financially healthy in 50 years i like that last one i feel like yeah obviously they're looking to make money and like you said, they're going to sacrifice 30 people going, 30% of people going to bankrupt and the other 70 are, I'm assuming not going to have exactly a very financial, healthy life, but yeah, it, it, yeah. Like you said, it's about what you optimize for. I want to, I'd want to try and get it to optimize for something that helps me, not the bank. We actually have a, a study that was done by Harvard on, um, life choices and what they lead to in the next, you know, 50, uh, 100 years. But I, I think that's uh, one of the only major pieces of research done on a, a current day decision and how it impacts you in 50 years. Uh, so I, I think so, if we did more research on that, then we could optimize better for long-term financial health. But a lot of these are short-term. Well, the problem with that is it tells you not to buy the TV, not to buy the sneakers, not to buy the car, like to buy only the cheapest, most yeah. utilitarian car. And yeah. you, know, you might be wanting to buy a nicer car for, for ends that are not financial. Like you want to like, you feel good in a nice car. Or you really want the TV to watch TV. You know, yeah. buying a TV is never going to optimize your long-term financial health. Of course. I think it's for consumption. And another problem with a lot of smart people is they defer consumption forever. Defer, they defer consumption or like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, utility forever. Like, it's always good to defer and save and, and let that compound. But there's also room for making decisions about consuming something you'll enjoy. Yeah. So I think it's, my point was not there's one person that should make the decision. I think, I think the point here is that like, it's really hard, even if you use words like AI and, and like, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, whatever, it's really hard to figure out whether or not you should do that thing. This problem yeah. is actually very, very complex. And even given all these choices, it's very unclear who should be making this decision. Of course. Even if you had a perfect omniscient intelligence with all the information, it's unclear whether they should approve or not approve the loan. Which is I just, my point was trying to make sense how hard it is actually. Yeah. Is this lending problem? But this is a good point because I, this is why I believe that having very stringent regulators and and also having you know this wild corporate side that wants to defeat the regulators, it's all in a perfect balance that that actually yields a very good solution at the end of the day. That's something that that takes in the input of all these pulling and tugging forces that that at the end of the day 
does something that is beneficial to consumers still, but where the business can still make a decent profit, right? I think competing interests, um, a compromise between competing interests is, is probably a pretty good model here. Um, certainly that's what the founding fathers designed a lot of democracy to be. And I think that's like, that's okay. Um, I mean, of all the choices I gave, I think like the, the smart stranger on the street who knows very little information about you, one could actually weirdly argue can make in some ways better choices than if you have a ton of information about you. I think yeah. that's very counterintuitive because you'd think the person with a ton of information would make a better decision. Mm -hmm. But the more information they have on you, the more subjective the decision yep. is whether you should take that loan or not. Oh. The, more, the more the bias of the person and what they're optimizing for matters. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you know very little information about you, ironically, it's much sort of easier to make a decision because you're like, yeah. oh, you're a college student. You don't have very many save very much savings. It's probably not a good idea for you to buy the really expensive TV. Once you're like, but I really want it. I want to become a podcaster and watching TV is my favorite <laughs> thing. It makes it really hard, right? Because then your mom wants to give you that one thing. Um, so I think there's like real tension here. But right? but there's the um, there's also the flip side to this, which is at what point does the amount of data that businesses have on you as an individual become? intrusive and borderline creepy because I, I did a thought experiment with our members and I told them go on a random website and move your cursor very slowly lo and behold companies measure your cursor speed because that's directly correlated to to your age so if I move my cursor very slowly I start getting ads for like nursing homes and stuff right uh -huh. so at what point does that become creepy and excessive to, to be intrusive into one's life, right? Look, I think I think that's a great question. I don't know the answer. I will tell. I think Apple recently applied for a patent that tried to measure whether or not from with your iPhone and gyroscope that measured whether or not you were drunk or not. I don't <laughs> sort of, you know, like and maybe maybe like you know you're drunk and you're driving and it like beeps really loudly and stops you from drunk driving, right? Yeah. Like maybe that's like good thing if it can stop you from drunk driving, making decisions that are bad decisions in the moment. Or maybe it's overly intrusive and like you start getting ads for payday loans when you're drunk, right? Like that would be a bad thing, right? So I hear you. I think there's good uses and bad uses to yeah. that information. I think critical to that is like permission, right? Like uh -huh. you give permission for them to collect that information. Yeah. I think one of the, the the best negative argument against having too much information for you out there is that you can't control when and how it's used. Yeah. You know, I really like when you can sort of the anonymous browsing thing, it feels to me like it's like pretty good. I yeah. also think that like I also think that like advertising is a weird one because everyone thinks of, I mean, the, the best case for advertising is that it informs you about the products you might want to buy. Of course. But whenever you, anyone who watches advertising knows that most ads do not have a lot of information that they impart. They're not like a, an ad for Coke is not telling you why drinking Coke is like healthy or good. Mm -hmm. It tells you why everyone drinking Coke is uh, having fun and like living on a beach or something. <laughs> so I think that like, if ads start being targeted to your specific situation where you're the where you're most vulnerable or most weak or most most likely to make a purchase the question is are they giving you information you need or are they taking advantage of a situation you're in of course and i think that like the right framework here is you want advertising and offers to inform you and improve and then allow you to make better choices um not just give you more choices that are bad choices in a time when you're going to make a bad choice mm -hmm. and so like the weird answer on AI is like maybe AI is actually pretty good because it knows when you're making bad choices too. And maybe your personal AI can guard against the company's AI and it can stop you from making choices when you're being taken advantage of. 
then the AI can't be drunk and the AI can't be tired and the AI can't be like, you know, pro more prone to temptation in a vulnerable moment. Uh -huh. And so maybe like the answer technology, like the information you just suggested is more information, not less. Yeah. Like instead of banning AI, maybe just everyone needs a personal AI to help them yeah. defend them against better other AIs. Cause like maybe collect stopping information transfer is impossible. Yeah. And so like we just have to go further. Wouldn't, um, wouldn't that be kind of scary though? Cause if I have like a personal AI that I then like knows basically everything about me, like, I don't know that what was it? It was like Facebook, right? That had that whole problem with like ad data, like a, like maybe like like a while ago. I don't know. Like I'd be I'd be really worried if I have a personal AI that's like taking all my information, like mm. or like scamming yeah, as well. Let's do an example. Only very few countries in the world allow for say pharmaceutical advertisements to be done on yeah. TV and in the internet. And so, like in most countries in the world, you're not allowed to advertise for drugs that yeah. are like. The doctor tells you these are the five, these are the drugs you need, and you get the drugs you need. And like, why am I going to the doctor and telling him I want like you know this drug that I saw an ad for on TV? Like that, there's something that's slightly counterintuitive about that, right? And you could do the libertarian argument that like everything should be free and I have the right to see the ad if I want to. And you could do the like cast unseen government argument that like this triggers bad decisions yep. or something in between. But you could also tell your personal AI, like, I just don't want to see drug ads. That seems like a bad thing. And that seems like a good outcome for your personal AI. Like, just strip out all drug ads. I don't want to see them. Yeah. Finn, this was such an amazing discussion about all things fintech, all things AI. Um, I want to cap this off with one last question that's a ubiquitous question for every guest that we have on. Our main audience, our college students, and a lot of us are are in this weird place where we're told that we have to have everything, have everything figured out, but at the same time, we're kind of lost. Um, so I guess if you were looking back, um, you know, 10 years, what is one piece of advice that you would give to a college student today that would put them in a really awesome position in the next five to 10 years? Uh, wow. Um, before I answer that, let me just say one last thing on the previous point we discussed, which is I think the key is to not give people more choices, but to give them better choices. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that like, if you give people better choices, they make, you know, the outcomes are better. Um, I think there's a, there's a false, there's a false error to thinking that more choices are, are good in and of themselves. I think the key here is to um, truly provide products as technologists, as technology, as fintech, in any of these fields, to truly provide people with better choices that make a radical improvement on their life. And I mean, you could easily argue that this conversation we're having right now over uh, Google Chat or Teams or, um, or, or or Zoom or whatever program we're using has improved people's life, made more connections, yeah. a lot of people have conversations they could never have had. That feels like the right use of technology. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe offering loans to people who shouldn't take loans is not a good use of technology. Like we can have that argument, right? Like that's a fair argument, but you know, it's uh, it should technology should be used to give people radically better choices and improve their life. I think that's the like north star we should be looking at. But to answer your second question on what advice I'd give, I think it's a really hard question because you know being a being an entrepreneur, for example, is really really hard. Mm -hmm. And I think people make the mistake of thinking that it's like going to work out well, but it often doesn't. I think it's a good thing to get off the beaten track, to take a risk, to try things, to sort of self-express in the most authentic way. But I think you have to expect that it can also fail and be ready for that level of failure. And you have to have the tenacity to do it again and again and again and learn through it. It's not, it's not for everybody. There's many people who would have a easier and better life doing something else if they're not suited for it. And there's many people who don't take risk who should. The one thing I'd say is I think it's really good to have a long-term plan. 
And I think it's underestimated the extent to which having a 20-year plan could be, or 10-year plan, is incredibly beneficial, whereas having a six-month or one-year or five-year or three-year plan is not that helpful. Yeah. Everyone has a one-year plan. They want to get promoted. Mm -hmm. Very, very few people have a 10- or 20-year plan because if you have a 20-year plan, by year 10, the advantage you've accrued by collecting just the right set of skills, abilities, relationships, has makes you incomparably better suited to get to where you want to get in 20 years than anyone else who has a series of one-year plans where they're marginally successful. Because the kinds of things you'll learn, say learning the new languages, setting up learning programming languages, building a set of relationships, can't be done in one year. Yeah, They can be done in a five or 10-year time frame. So if you think very carefully and deeply about what you want to accomplish over 20 years, whether that's being an entrepreneur or whether that's working for the CIA or whether that's you know being an incredibly interesting talented you know um podcaster a 20-year plan i think is always much rarer and more useful and more uh, interesting than a one-year plan and so i think any hard goal if you want to be an entrepreneur maybe the answer isn't to be an entrepreneur tomorrow it might be a five-year plan learning code making relationships gaining a set of experiences in a specific industry or it could be doing it tomorrow and then failing a few times and trying to and then and building a set of skills that way but i think the worst thing to do is to have a one-year plan Mm-hmm. And so I, I, any, the, my recommendation would be be very thoughtful, come up with a long-term plan that, um, that you are willing to stick to and that you care a lot about, and then try to execute on that plan in a systematic way over many, many years, and you will be, in the end, unstoppable. I love it. You know, I, I always try to emphasize execution um, to our members. I, I think it's a very important word when you when you talk about, you know, I can have all these ideas in my mind, uh, but can I actually put in put all my, you know, pieces in order and and uh, checkmate the king eventually. Right. Absolutely. Finn, thank you so much for being here and, and taking the time to talk with us today. Elijah, thank you for co-hosting with me today, sir. Of course. Always a pleasure. 